0: Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus again this morning. This week I went down a rabbit hole online about that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and the exact meaning of the phrase, One Little Word Shall Fell Him, and what what Luther meant by that, and lots of different theories about what he was referring to there, but I, I think it's a safe bet given the next verse, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. It seems pretty clear what or who he's talking about, right? He's talking about the the capital W, Word, the Word made flesh, Jesus. And it's, it's his name that we are considering this morning. We're in Exodus chapter 20. We're looking at the third commandment this morning. The third commandment. Will you follow along with me, either in your own Bibles or up on the screen? Exodus 20 verse 7. Here's what it says. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the written word, which speaks to us of the incarnate word, your son, the exact image, the exact imprint of your nature and your character. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts so that we understand well and can respond faithfully to what you say to us in it. Do that work, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been graded on a curve. Familiar with how that works? Have you ever been graded on a curve? Usually, usually the way it works, I think, is that uh, you know, a teacher will give a test, a quiz, and, and begin to see that all of the students in the class are doing poorly either on the whole thing or on one particular subject matter, some particular subject or, or topic or section of the quiz or the test. And uh, in order to not give everybody a poor grade, they they apply a curve and, and raise everybody's grade a little bit in such a way that the same uh, standard is, is, is observable throughout the whole class, um, but everybody's grade goes up just a little bit, right? I've benefited from curves applied that way in my own educational career. I know maybe you have too. And that that, that system usually works fairly well um, until there's a student who aces the test, right? If if a student aces the test, if one or more students get everything right, then that kind of throws the whole system off. The curve gets messed up. They're the curve breaker. And uh, I was thinking about that this week as I was about the way the Ten Commandments work. There, there's a sense in which we could say that that God was grading the world on a curve for a long time. He was applying the Ten Commandments on a curve. In fact, Paul, Paul kind of intimates that in his, in his message to the, uh, the people in, in Athens, uh, the Areopagus, in Acts chapter 17. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he's calling on all men everywhere to repent because... A curve breaker showed up, so to speak. Jesus came and did everything perfectly. And, and now the, the curve, if, if, we can be, if we can apply that idea a little bit liberally, the curve is broken. Now the standard is raised. Now the expectations are ratcheted up. And that's one of the things that we're seeing as we go through the Ten Commandments, that that it's not just the, the, the letter of the commands that have to be observed, but that when we interpret them through the lens of Christ and through the lens of the gospel, we see a much deeper spirit behind them and a much greater expectation placed on people, an expectation, in fact, that can only be met by Jesus, and that we can only then fulfill when we have faith in Jesus, when we repent and are found to be in him. This morning, as we look at the third commandment, we see the same principle at work. The third commandment is is not just about not misusing the name of God. It involves much more than that. It involves actively honoring the character of God. Obeying the third commandment, Jesus teaches us, the rest of the scripture teaches us, the third commandment involves more than just not misusing the name of God. It involves actively honoring the character of God. That's what we're going to see as we consider this verse, this commandment this morning. So we're going to talk first about the commandment itself. We're going to see the commandment that's about God's name. We're going to talk about the content of it. We're going to talk about the deeper meaning of the commandment, the deeper meaning of God's name, which is the expression of God's character. We're going to talk about the full expression of God's character, which comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Then we're going to talk about how we obey the third commandment. We're going to talk about how we can honor God's name today. Obeying the third commandment involves more than just not misusing the name of God. It involves actively honoring the character of God. So first of all, consider this commandment, the content of it, the commandment about God's name. It says very simply, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Or I think it's the NIV perhaps that says you shall not misuse, you must not misuse the name of God. And we tend to apply that in a very simple way. We tend to say that the main application of that is that we are not going to use the English names of God flippantly. And so as Christians, we don't say things like, oh my God, for example, or, or good Lord, or God Almighty, or, or things like that. We don't use the, the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, in an exclamatory way as, a, as an expletive. Uh, we don't want to do that. And, and that is part of it. That is a legitimate application of this commandment. We don't speak that way uh, because it's a way of dishonoring the the person of God. It's a way of speaking flippantly about him who should be spoken of only reverently. And in fact, uh, we have good reason to believe that that's a legitimate application of this commandment because there's a long history amongst the Jewish people of taking this commandment in exactly that way, right? They take this commandment so seriously that when in Jewish synagogues, they're reading through the Hebrew scriptures and they come across The the name which in in English pronunciation we would say Yahweh, they don't say that out loud, right? They'll they'll substitute something else. They'll substitute the Hebrew word Adonai or the the phrase Hashem, which means Lord or the name, respectively as a way of being sure that they don't break this third commandment. And and in fact, even in much uh, English literature written by Jewish folks or by people who are sensitive to that, they won't write out the word God. They'll they'll write G and then a hyphen and then D. And and, and it's all an effort to honor this commandment. And so given that application of the third commandment, the long history of that, the long tradition of that within that community, I think it's reasonable for us to, to apply this commandment that way, to say we are not going to say things like, oh my God, or Jesus Christ, in an exclamatory way. We shouldn't do that as Christians. I want to encourage you, if that's a bad habit of yours, I want to encourage you to, to, to wipe that out of your vocabulary. I think it's good for us not to speak that way as followers of Jesus. I think it's good for us to teach our children not to speak that way as followers of Jesus. And so that's, that's one of the most simple ways that we apply this commandment. That's, that's one of the most simple ways that we understand it. And yet, as we get deeper into the Scripture, one of the things that we realize is that the commandment itself is about much more Than that. The Bible seems to consistently apply this command in terms of avoiding dishonoring the character of God. It's about more than just how you refer to God or how you use the names by which you refer to God, it's about not dishonoring the character of God. So, for example, when a person deliberately slanders God, deliberately insults God, that is seen as a breaking of the third commandment. You see an example of this, for, uh, for instance, in Leviticus chapter 24. I'm going to read a few verses from Leviticus 24 to you. You don't have to take time to turn there if you don't want, but you might want to write the reference down if you want to look at it later. Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 16, we encounter this story. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name. That's our clue that this is going to be looked at through the lens of the third commandment. He blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan, in case any of you wanted to know who his mom was, all right? And they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be clear to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes, the name shall be put to death. In this instance, the person who is, who is standing accused and then being executed is guilty of cursing God. God makes that clear, that that's what's happened. He's cursed God. He's, he has blasphemed. He has insulted Yahweh. But because of the way the language is used there, it's clear that this is a reference to this third commandment. He has taken the name of the Lord vainly. He has misused it. He's spoken ill of the Lord. That is a breaking of the third commandment or when a person swears a false oath in the name of the Lord. This is also seen as a breaking of the third commandment. So, Leviticus 19.12, we read, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Again, the language that's being used there makes it clear that it is this third commandment which is in view. When When a person swears something and invokes the name of the Lord and swears falsely, they're dishonoring the person, the character of God. And and you see similar usage in Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, just to give you some other references. All of these are examples of breaking the third commandment. Or, when a person, while pretending to worship God, actually worships a false god. As in Leviticus 18, 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Listen, the only way that, that offering a child sacrifice to Molech might possibly be construed as profaning the name of God is if it's being done in the name of God. So what, what, what that command has in view there is people who are pretending to worship Yahweh, acting as though they're, they're following Yahweh, but actually worshiping and performing the worship of a false pagan god. God says, this is offensive to me. This is slandering my character. You're making me look bloodthirsty to outsiders. You're you're misrepresenting me. All of which goes to this point. You see, we see a common thread all through those further applications of this third commandment, which relate to the character of God. That's why this command can be applied so broadly. And this leads us then to our second point, the deeper meaning of God's name. The deeper meaning of God's name, that is that it is the essence of his character. You see, biblically speaking, a person's name represented very often their character or their reputation. At least that's certainly true with regards to God. Earlier in our service, uh, Bill mentioned several of the names of God that we think of in, in scripture, and all of them are things that relate to God's character. In fact, in a in, in song that we just sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and speaking about Jesus, we said of him, Lord Sabaoth is his name, which I don't know if you remember that. That's, that's one of the Old Testament names of, of Yahweh, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord, God of hosts. But all of the names of God, would, uh, wherever you find them in Scripture, they all relate to God's character. They tell us something about who God is. And that's how names generally worked in, the, in, ancient, in most ancient communities and certainly in the Bible. And so we think, for example, of, um, of how Jesus renames people, right? He, he names Simon, his disciple, Peter, because he says, you know, you're, you're the rock and, and your confession on this rock, I will build my church. And he, he names James and John. Remember, he calls them Boanerges, the sons of thunder because of their, uh, their disposition. And, and, and we see other names in scripture used the same way. Names often conveyed something about a person's character or when bestowed on infants by their parents, they said something about the parents' beliefs about God or their hopes for that child. We don't often use names that way in our culture, but sometimes we do. Sometimes names carry at least family significance, if nothing else. But in ancient cultures, That was even more so. In fact, in in some ancient cultures that had a more magical disposition, a more magical way of viewing the world, they guarded their names very carefully because they believed that if somebody knows your real name, then they had power over you. Names were serious things. So when we read in the scripture that God says, do not take my name in vain, he's saying much more than just be careful how you use the syllables that refer to me. He's saying much more than just, be careful how you use that little word that you tag on to me to refer to me. He's saying, be careful how you represent my character. Be careful what you do with my reputation. Be sure that you don't misrepresent me. That's the only way that the way the scripture talks about God's name makes any sense. When we read the psalmist in Psalm 8 saying, how majestic is your name, as we sang earlier in the service, We understand that he's speaking about more than just the the sounds that we pronounce that refer in our head to the being that is God. It's more than just that. He's talking about more than just those sounds, more than just that label. He's talking about something else. It's not about the name of God, it's about the person of God. Except that God's name is biblically inseparable from his person. How majestic is your name, the psalmist says. Or as we read earlier in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 12, glorify your name. Or as John the the apostle writes in his third epistle, that missionaries have gone out for the sake of the name. Or in Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he says, your name that you have given to me. He's talking about more than just a label, more than just the words that get put on the sticky name tag. Right? He's talking about the express representation of the character of God. That's the deeper meaning of God's name. The name of God represents the character, the reputation of God. And what is God's name? And what can we derive from God's name about his character? Well, we know by this time in the book of Exodus exactly who this God is. He's revealed himself to Moses as, I am, Yahweh. When Moses says, who should I tell the Israelites sent me? He says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me. And we've talked about some of the things that that name signifies. We've talked about how that speaks to us of God's eternality. He is the eternally existent one. He is the eternally self-existent one, self-sufficient in all of his essence and being. And, and we, could, we could talk more and more about all the things that I am signifies. But for this morning, the one thing that I want you to zero in on, hone in on about that name, I am, is that it speaks to us something about God's truthfulness, It tells us something about God's truthfulness. You say, well, how do those things connect? Here's how. When God says, I am, when he describes himself with that simple phrase, I am that I am, what he's telling us amongst other things is that he is the solitary fact. He is. Everything else that is owes its existence to him. Everything else that exists, exists because he is. He is the only one that that can be said about. He is the only one that exists solely within himself. You've heard the phrase, all truth is God's truth. Have you heard that? All truth is God's truth. The reason that all truth is God's truth is because God is truth. He is true. He's not just true, he is truth. Is the standard of truth. The scriptures abound with this point. Again and again, we are told about God's truthfulness. Exodus 34.6 speaks to us about how God is abounding in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 31.5, the Lord God of truth. Psalm 108.4, your loving kindness is great above the heavens. Your truth reaches to the skies. Psalm 119 speaks of it over and over again about God's law is truth. His commandments are truth. His word is truth. He is truth. And by that, we don't just mean that he adheres to some external standard of truthfulness, as though God is just really, really good at telling the truth. God is just really disciplined about never lying. That's not what we mean. What we mean is that it is impossible for God to lie. It's not a possibility. When God says it, it is by definition truth. It's impossible for God to lie, the freshman Philosophy student says, Well, I thought you said God could do anything. It's impossible for him to lie. It's inconsistent. No, you moron. That's not what we're talking about. You can quote me to any freshman philosophy students, you know. <laughs> no, what we're, what, we're, what we're saying, of course, is that God is, it's impossible for God to be something that he isn't. God cannot lie any more than God could not exist. God, it's impossible for God to possible for light to be dark in the same way that it's impossible for one to be zero. It's just not a possibility. God is the standard of truth. And so it is then a very serious thing to misrepresent the truth, to misrepresent the character of God, which is precisely, incidentally, what Moses does In Numbers 20. Do you remember the story in Numbers 20 where Moses strikes the rock the second time when he was told to speak to it? Do you remember that story? We we encountered the first time when Moses strikes the rock when the people of Israel are thirsty, they didn't have any water, and God takes Moses to the rock and he says, gather the people, gather the elders of Israel and strike the rock and I'll cause water to come forth and, and give my people nourishment Well, later, in Numbers 20, we come across a second time where the same thing happens. But this time, we remember God tells Moses, go and and tell the rock, speak to the rock, tell the rock, give forth your water, and I will give water to my people. And what does Moses do? He takes up his staff. Whenever I read the story, I go, that was the first mistake. God didn't tell him, take your staff that time. But as Moses leaves, so to speak, he grabs his staff on the way out the door, and he goes to the rock. And he thunders in front of the people, you rebels, shall I bring water from this rock? And he hits it twice. And God faithfully gives water to his people. But then he says to Moses, because you've dishonored me, because you've disbelieved me, and not upheld me as holy, you will not enter the promised land. Moses was enabled to see it from a distance but he never entered into the promised land because of that disobedience because of that sin and we read that story and we go this seems harsh it seems unfair it was one mistake Moses makes one mistake no he misrepresented the character of God do you see God was not angry with his people God was gracious. God was the loving shepherd who saw that his flock was thirsty and had ordained a miraculous way to give them water. He was gracious and compassionate, and God's prophet made God look full of wrath. He misrepresented the character of God, and the people of Israel thought then that God was angry, and God said, Moses, you have misrepresented me. I am not angry at my people, but you've acted like I am. Moses, in other words, was guilty of breaking the third commandment. He misused the name of God. He misrepresented the character of God. And people still do this, don't they? People still misrepresent the character of God in all kinds of ways. There are people who, like Moses in that instance, represent God as being entirely wrathful, and that's all. Hellfire and brimstone. Now, sometimes people themselves get misrepresented that way, right? I always get irritated when I read people's criticisms, for example, of Jonathan Edwards and his his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, as though that or an example of of a preacher who was presenting God as full of wrath and anger. And then I wonder, have they ever actually read that sermon? If you read the sermon, that's not the point of the sermon at all. On the contrary, Edwards is saying, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God who has every right to judge us, but doesn't. He holds us in his hands and prevents us from falling into the fire. He's a compassionate God. So sometimes people are misrepresented. I understand that. But there are preachers who actually misrepresent God as though he's only wrathful against sin. And they only ever preach God's wrath and his anger, his hatred of sin. And they never get to God's mercy and his love and his forgiveness and the depth of his grace. And there are those who who misrepresent him in the other direction, as though God has no wrath against sin. They represent him as only loving and accepting of everyone, regardless of how you've sinned. And, And they never say anything about God's wrath against sin, or his holiness, or his justice. And they are both, they are both misrepresenting God. Or preachers who who make it seem as though God's deepest concern for you is that you would be healthy and wealthy and happy in this life, as though he cares more about your happiness in this life and less about your happiness in eternity. And they're misrepresenting God. Sometimes sometimes we are guilty, whether we are preachers or not. Sometimes we are guilty of misrepresenting God. Sometimes we can represent God as being accepting of sin when he isn't. Sometimes we can represent God as being wrathful and vindictive when in fact he is gracious and compassionate. I think this is a question that we have to ask ourselves. How do our actions and our words, how does the way that we treat one another, what does that say to others about God? How are we reflecting the character of God what are we communicating to our neighbors, our co-workers? What are we communicating to our spouses or our children about God? There was a time when I was still a new parent, when my ambition was to perfectly represent the character of God. I, I thought that if I was a good father, you know, and, and uh, had a good and balanced way of punishing Disobedience and also gently instructing in things that I would be a good picture of the way God loves us as His children. I don't have that ambition anymore. <laughs> I've kind of I've kind of abandoned that project. But I still have hope. I still have hope for mirroring something else. I have hope instead for mirroring, for, for reflecting. Reflecting the truth that God is gracious through my own seeking of forgiveness, both from my children and, and wife as well as from God himself. Right? This is a question that we have to ask. We have to be deliberate about how we reflect the truths about God. We must not be unintentionally guilty of breaking the third commandment by misrepresenting God. Obeying the third commandment involves more than just not misusing the name of God. It involves actively honoring the character of God. And that brings us then to our third point, which is where we see the full expression of God's character in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the express image of every aspect of God's character. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the visible image of the character of God. Colossians The expression of the character of God. Jesus is the express image of God's character, the express image of God's truth. Especially, remember we said, God is truth. His name reminds us of the fact that He is truth. And this is something that Jesus claims for Himself as well. We read in John 1.14, "...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." which incidentally is a callback to one of those things that's said about God all the time in the Old Testament, that he is full of, of loving kindness and faithfulness, loving kindness and truth, mercy and grace, chesed and emet. Right, Bob? Can I get an amen? These are the things that are said about, thank you, that are said about God in the Old Testament, and this in John 1.14 is a direct echoing of that, that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Or we read in John 14, 6, Jesus says about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And and we're familiar with that verse as being a good one to use when we're sharing the gospel with people. It tells us of the exclusivity of Christ as the means of salvation. No man comes to the Father but by me, yes. But notice what else Jesus is saying there. He says, I am the truth. I want to submit to you that no one can say that. Any other teacher might be able to say, I speak truth, or I speak truly, or I try to be true, or I don't lie. But Jesus doesn't say any of those things. He says, I am the truth. Only God can say that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus often begins his teachings by reminding them of this. In the Old King James, it reads, Verily, verily, I say unto you, right? We read that a lot in King James. Newer translations will update it a little bit and say, truly, truly, I say to you. But even that's an accommodation to our modern ears. What Jesus is actually saying is, truth, truth. Here's what I have to say. It was, a, it was a way of introducing his statements that would have been jarring to his original hearers because they were used to rabbis speaking about what they thought. But, but the rabbis in the first century would always cite other sources. Their disciples would come to them and say, tell us what you think about such and such. And they would say, well, Rabbi Gesineus says this. And uh, Rabbi Abraham ben Isaac says that. And they would cite all these, all these sources. right? And by the way, that's what I do too. That's what other human teachers are going to do. If you come and say, Andrew, what do you think about this point of doctrine? How do you think this verse should be interpreted? More than likely, what you're going to hear me do is say, well, Tim Keller interprets it this way, and John Piper interprets it that way, and -and so-and-so interprets it this way, and here's what I think. And do you know why we do that? And do you know why the Jewish rabbis did that? Because they weren't sure. They were doing their best. I'm doing my best. But at the end of the day, we all realize that we're humans and we're prone to error. And so we're going to qualify everything that way. But when Jesus comes, he says, truth, truth, I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He doesn't quote other rabbis. He doesn't quote any sources. He doesn't need to, because he is the source of truth. He is the truth. Everything that he says is true by definition. This is why the crowds were astonished. Remember in the Gospels, it says they were astonished because Jesus taught with authority, and not as their scribes. Jesus takes on this divine characteristic. He reveals this divine characteristic about himself, and he makes it explicit in John eight fifty eight when he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is the express expression of God's character and God's truth. And Jesus, it is who teaches us to honor the name of God in a very particular way. And so I want to remind you now of the words that Jesus taught us to pray. We're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer, aren't we? We've all heard it. We've all recited it in various settings. But I want you to consider one part of it. As Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, he says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, right? That that clues us into the fact that Jesus has in mind this third commandment. And he's telling us, incidentally, it's not enough for you just to avoid misusing the name of God. You have to take the extra step of working to and asking God to hallow, to sanctify, to set apart, to make famous his name. Right? So obeying the third commandment involves more than just not misusing the name of God. It involves actively honoring the name of God. Jesus says, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And how is that going to happen? How is God's name going to be hallowed? How is his name going to be made much of? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what will cause God's name, God's character to be shown as great. It is when his kingdom comes. It is when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this way. I wonder how often we pray that way. I don't mean how often do we pray the Lord's Prayer. That's a valuable thing to do. It's a good discipline. But what I mean more is how often do your prayers reflect this sentiment? How often do our prayers reflect this desire for God's reputation to be great, for God's glory to be be great, and for his knowledge of his glory to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea? How often do our prayers encompass this desire for the kingdom of God to come so that his name will be great? Obeying the third commandment is more than just not misusing God's name. It's actively seeking to honor it. So, how do we do it? How do we honor God's name today? How do we obey this third commandment today? In closing, I have just a few suggestions for us in terms of how to apply this. How do we go from thinking abstractly about these truths to living this out in our life? Consider. First of all, as we've already said... We must not use the names of God in a flippant manner. I think that's a good first step. That's a good first level thing to do. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we ought to have our speech characterized by this truth. Let's not use the name of God in a flippant way. Okay, good. Second, we must not misrepresent the essence of his character Or his truth by ourselves being liars. This is why we are supposed to tell the truth. You say, well, hold on, I thought there was another commandment about that. Thou shalt not lie, right? We're gonna get to that down the road, except what we're gonna see when we get to that commandment is that that's less about lying in general and much more about lying in a particular context which is why our translations correctly translated as thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. That has more to do with speaking the truth in judicial settings. It's a commandment about seeking justice and truth. But here, as we look at the third commandment, we see an, we, we, we see an impulse to be truthful ourselves so that we can adequately reflect the truthfulness of God's character. This is the reason that we tell the truth, because God is the truth. Third, we must honor the character of God by telling people the truth about God's love and forgiveness that are available only in Jesus. Would we honor the name of God? Would we accurately reflect his character and make his name great? Then we must tell people about him. We must show how great He is. We must show people that that Jesus is the King. We must show people that God has expectations on their lives, that, that God holds people accountable for sin, and that the only salvation, the only forgiveness is found in His Son, Jesus. And we must tell them of God's great love. We must tell them that God has loved them so much that Jesus died on the cross so they could be saved. And we must tell them that God requires nothing from them. Nothing In my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. We tell them the truth. This is how we can honor the name of God. By telling people the truth of the gospel. Fourth, we can honor the name of God by seeking the kingdom of God. In the kingdom, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, thus showcasing his character for all to see. You see, that's one of the great problems in our society, in our world, in our broken and fallen world. It is that God's character is not clearly seen. And that's why we want the kingdom to come, because when the kingdom is here, then God's character will be known to all. In that day, Paul tells us, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no doubt in anyone's mind who God is or what his character is, that he is truth and that he is love.